today the title of the message is We Believe in the Church and Its Mission. I think something that we need to be reminded of from time to time is that God's desire has always been to be in relationship with his human creatures. He's always desired that. Since he formed us, since he formed Adam from the dirt, and he formed Eve from Adam, God's always desired relationship and fellowship with his creatures, his human creatures. So what ended up happening, to give you just a very quick summary of the entirety of human history... Are you ready? We messed it up. We chose disobedience and then the consequences were far reaching when we disobeyed God. And God's plan was temporarily thwarted by his creatures. It was detoured. His original design was detoured because we messed it up. His plan has never changed though and it has always been about the redemption of his people and the full redemption of his creation i'm reading a very interesting book and we're going to have a series about this later this year um, on the book of revelation um, and um, reading about heaven and sometimes we have all these thoughts about heaven of us just being floating out there spiritually like cupid on a cloud with you know whatever That is not the case. What God wants to do is restore his original design. You will have a body. You will be worshiping and serving God. We will be growing crops and doing all kinds of things. With the absence of sin and disobedience, we'll still be worshiping. We'll still be tithing. (laughs) Yeah. This is going to happen, okay? These are eternal things that God wants us to do. And he wants us to remain or start a relationship with him and remain in fellowship with him. But after we messed it up, the flood came and there was this great reset where God chose to restart with a single family and go from there. And he said, after that, I'm going to choose a specific people to be able to fulfill my plan for redemption. And so he chose the people of Israel to be playing this role, this important role in his plan for redemption. Because of that, and because of Christ who came as his only begotten son, what ended up happening was that door that was open was not just open just to the Israelite people, but it was to all who want to come into the family of God, into the people of God, into the church, anyone who would be willing to accept his offer of salvation. So what ends up happening is Israel still receives the benefit of the promises of God that are given to Israel in Scripture. But as you'll learn today, the church, listen to me clearly, because this is theologically sound, and you need to make sure you understand me when I say this. The church has not replaced the nation and people of Israel. We have been grafted in, but God's promise remains to them, and we get it too. 
And you'll see the New Testament writers use, and even Jesus himself uses wording and phrasing and quotes from the Old Testament that directly deal with Israel and then now apply it to the church of Jesus Christ. So the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ we're going to talk about today and its mission is really, really important. And we believe in it because we have a mission that is yet to be fulfilled. Let me give you this little side note. The only way the mission of the church can be fulfilled is if God's human creatures are empowered by his Holy Spirit to be able to do this work. And not to sound too aggressive, but just to set it in in the right place. I'm not the only one in charge of doing this. Okay, so we have all got this mission. Amen. So the New Testament writers um, were inspired by the Holy Spirit and even Jesus himself. He's quoted giving several. They are and he is quoted giving several unique descriptions and metaphors when describing the church. So I want to examine those today and help us look to see what the church should be according to the New Testament and what it's yet to be fulfilled mission looks like. But first, what I want you to do is I want to tell you what the church is not. And then I'll tell you what the church is. Because I think people uh, are misunderstood or they misunderstand God's word and they believe certain things about the church. And there's a giant list and I could go through everyone in detail, but we'd be here past lunch and I'm already hungry probably. Uh, So just like you. So what I want to do is tell you one primary thing the church is not and talk about that for a moment before we talk about what the church is. So the first thing is this, the church is not a building. Now you say, oh, I've heard pastors talk about this before, but every Sunday at 1030, they want me in a building. Okay, yes, yes we do. But I want to give you a clear picture and understanding of what the church is not. Because the church uses a building, it is not a building. Now, the Bible does, even in the New Testament, call us or refer to us as a building. Um, it says that we are the household of God, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone that is the foundation upon which you as a brick are laid in the house of God. There's different wording that's used there, but what's really important is to understand that we are the church. You and I are the church, and we use a building. If we become persecuted starting tomorrow and they shut down our building and say you cannot meet here or something crazy happens, which happens all over the world all the time. um, If that were to happen, the church would not die. We would go and meet at Sam and Ann's house. We would meet at Dan and Julie's house or pastor's house or Sandra's house. The church would still be alive and well if this building burnt down tomorrow. Because the church is not a building, but we use a building. And the reason why I say that is the meaning of the word church we get is from a Greek word, ekklesia. It means this, a called out assembly or congregation. If you look deeper into the meaning of the word, it basically means by invitation only. I want you to think with your spiritual mind today. Those who become the family of God and the church of God are here by invitation only. 
the invitation of God and the invitation of you yourself. This word ekklesia in Greek is the one that we have our English words derived from, which you see on the screen, ecclesiastical, which means pertaining to the church, or ecclesiology, which is the stutter, I, I, the stutter, the study, it's a hard word. Uh, I took a class in uh, Bible college about this, um, the study of doctrine concerning the church. Um, and many times throughout history, and I don't know if you've ever in, entertained an argument with somebody about these kinds of things. Um, well, the church and the crusades and the Pope and the, and the this and the that. There's all kinds of bad things that have happened under the name and banner of the church. But don't you dare forget, God is alive and well through those who are his people, his authentic, true people here on the earth still today. Amen? So many, many good things have happened as a result of the church. God cannot be bound by a tent or a tabernacle or a temple. He, does, he, he can't fit in a building. Now, there are images throughout scripture that help us understand this is where we go to meet God. But then all of a sudden, it's opened up to us when the writers of the New Testament, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us Jesus Christ has become a doorway for anyone to come in. If you're familiar with the stories surrounding Easter and the crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection, you may remember well the fact that when Jesus was crucified and died, that the veil, the Bible says, was torn in two. That veil that was a veil of separation, the writer of Hebrews says, to separate you dirty people from God's holy presence is now opened up because of Jesus. You can come, the Bible says, boldly to the throne of grace, whereas before you had to bring an animal sacrifice and do all of these other things. I'm so glad that God has a church. Amen? If I wasn't a pastor, I'd be a chef. But God called me to lead a church. So you get to eat some of my food from time to time, and that's pretty much the end result of that. God's called and appointed leadership for his church. We've got people who desire to help in children's ministry and lead children's ministry and worship ministry and all of those things. Those people are appointed and elected and gifted and purposed for work in the church, inside the life of the church. But listen, even if you don't hold a place of leadership in the church, you have a purpose. It's not just to be a bench warmer waiting for somebody to keel over and then you can take their spot. It's not that. It's about you serving a purpose and being gifted for different things. So listen to what Paul tells the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this in verse 14, and I'm going to help correct some theology today. I like to do this as we go through something like this so that you can have some fodder for that next argument you're going to get in. Okay, verse 14, it says this, do not be married to an unbeliever. Look at me and shake your head no. Okay, that's not what this verse is about. I'll expound on it in just a second. I was born and raised in the church, and I was told a believer should never marry an unbeliever. Principally, that is correct in the word of God. He wanted the Israelites to remain pure and only marry Israelites. Not because he's against interracial marriage. Can I get an amen? Not because he only chooses these people and no one else. Because he says missionary dating doesn't work. 
That's what we've been saying to youth for generations now. You can't be the saved one going after the unsaved one, but I'm just going, I'm going to bring her pretty self to church with me and we're just going to love Jesus together. No, you're not. You're going to find yourself taken by her somewhere else. Okay. And that's, that can be said either way. I'm not hating on a lady. Okay. Listen to me. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? So Paul in context and context helps us deepen our understanding of the content in context. Paul is dealing with an issue in the Corinthian church. This is his second letter. Some Many say it's his third. We've lost one of them. But many say it's his third that we've got. And he's still dealing with something another year after his first letter goes to them to correct some crazy stuff happening. And now he's dealing with this stuff because what they were trying to do is they were trying to take their pretty little Jesus and add him to all their other things that they worship and serve and do. So they were still going to other gods' temples in the city of Corinth. They were still eating food that was offered to idols. They, they, they were worldly or carnal in nature. And what Paul is addressing is saying, you've got to get this right. You can't keep doing that stuff and adding God to the mix. He is all sufficient. He deserves the one and only spot. Verse 16, he continues and says this. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In one of my, uh, one of my study resources, as I looked at this, what Paul is doing, if you dive really deep, he's essentially quoting from at least six different Old Testament passages and putting them together in this simple thought when he quotes God having said, I'll make my dwelling with you, with you people, and I'll walk among them, be their God, they'll be my people. They're supposed to be called out, separated from the others by invitation, amen, and then I'll welcome you, I'll be a father to you, you'll be my sons and my daughters, So God's desire for his people, Israel, has now been grafted in, we've been grafted into that desire as those who are now Gentiles. So the Corinthian church was not just a group of Jewish people that started believing in Jesus. They were that as well as Gentiles who served other gods and came to be part of the Christian faith. So Paul, by the Spirit of God, is helping them to understand that what is said about Israel now is applying to the church. It has a much larger implication because we are the temple of the living God. Your body is a temple of the living God if you are a believer. So the church is not a building, it's people, and he dwells inside of his people. 
It's amazing when you think about it. It should help us to really start to think about our involvement or engagement in the life and the family that God has called us into, this spiritual family. That each one of us has a purpose and a design and giftings and all of these things that we can bring to the table. So if I could say this so boldly, don't be selfish and hold on to those things. If you know how to play the keyboard, play the keyboard. If you can help open doors and say hello, if you love children, listen, if you don't love children, I don't want you in children's ministry. (laughs) I'll tell you that a hundred times. I want to make sure if you're you're not a fan of it, don't do it. Okay. We want a good reputation. We want people who love being around children. I love children, my children. (laughs) So, so I'm not called to children's ministry, right? Um, so here's the, here's what I'm trying to say. We are now the dwelling place of God. So let's move to a a few of these unique descriptors and metaphors that we find in the New Testament for the people who are called out. The first one is this. The church is the body of Christ. Now, listen to these verses, and you can write them down. We won't have all of them on the screen, but I'll just share them with you quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 says this. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, we are members of Christ's body. So, Membership is important in the body of Christ. Some people love to be in a larger church. And don't get me wrong. There are amazing things about a large-scale church. I've been in many of them. I enjoy the worship, the energetic atmosphere. It's so exciting. Like It's amazing how far we've come. At the same time, there are some people that like that setting so they don't have to get to know anybody and don't have to do anything in the body of Christ and don't have to engage. But Paul, in his writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you are each individually members of it and you have a purpose. Consider your own body for a minute. Some of you looked in the mirror and I can tell. Some of you may not have this morning. I'm not going to call out names. (laughs) Consider your body for just a moment. Just hear me. Humans, the human body is so complex. It's absolutely amazing how stupid people are who think that this could have just happened by accident. There's no way. I'm going to tell you a couple scientific details this morning that some of my chemistry teachers could probably back up, which is your body is composed of over 30 trillion cells, white blood cells, red blood cells, nerve cells, brain cells, all of these different things. We've got people who are doctors in the place and educators who are in the medical profession. There are dozens of intricate systems inside of your body. You've got over 200 bones inside of your body and more than 75 organs inside of you. Each with its own structure, its own function, 
It's interconnectedness to the other systems of the body. In a healthy body, every cell, system, bone, and organ work in harmony. It is amazing if you just consider the human body of which God, through his spirit to Paul, is helping people in the church at Corinth. And I want to help you today to understand that you are the body of Christ. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This is an interesting point, which means to me, this image helps us understand our need for one another, for one another as the body of Christ, each one having its own purpose. If you're the appendix of the body of Christ and I'm the liver and she's the thumb and he's the hand and all of these things, guess what it also means? It means none of us, including me or my boss or my boss's boss are the head of the church. The brain, the brains of this organization that we call the church of the living God, all of that is God's. He is the one who directs and inspires someone to get engaged in the ministry in the body of Christ. He's the one that helps them understand that they're, that all of us are equally valued members and that we each have a function and a purpose. He is the only one who is the head of the church. And let me tell you something else. It is not the Pope. It's not the, the pastor who rose in the ranks of leadership from a state office to become our national leader of our denomination. It is not me. It is no one. Christ is the head of the church. Amen? Number two, another metaphor, another image that's given to us is the church is the human family of God on earth. Now, this is interesting to me, just like the body is super interesting, just the the um, correlation between the two. The church being the human family of God on earth. See, each one of us, when we receive salvation, the Bible tells us, become the adopted son or daughter of the living God, and we become the siblings of Jesus, Now, I know you're like, I've never thought of myself as a sister of Jesus Christ. Well, listen, the older generation knew when I was little and I was raised in church to say, hi, Sister Julie, how are you today? Hi, Brother Dan, how are you today? I was raised with that understanding. Who else in here was raised? When you were in church, you called people brother and sister, right? So I was raised with that understanding because we are not just brothers and sisters of one another, but we're the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And the Bible spells this out clearly. See, God has always existed in relationship with himself and with his creatures that he's created. He doesn't need them, but he created them by design because he wanted to, and he's relational in nature. So that makes us relational in nature because we're the bearers of his image on the earth. You cannot be a healthy Christian without being connected to a local church. 
I've said it once, I'll say it a hundred times. It's all throughout scripture. You can, let me use the body language. You cannot be an amputee and live a good, self-existent, holy life without the encouragement of the rest of the family of God. Do you understand me? So that's a challenge to those who think, oh, hey, you know, I I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's kind of like the origin of the word Christian is Christ. And he's all about family. God's always been relational and continues to be. In fact, I would say this. He's the grand designer, the great composer of these two items that we know as marriage and family. He's the one that did that. And all throughout scripture, it tells us that these things are are meant as a mirror of what is God's desire for us. Marriage and family. A little bit of a side note. I really think because of these two magnificently designed things that he's given his human creatures, they've been on the top priority list of the agenda of the enemy of God and all of his underlings since the beginning of time. Because the enemy and his servants, those who serve him, whether they're human or spiritual beings, are always seeking the destabilization, the undermining, the disablement, the destruction of these two institutions. I thought people were crazy and they were just old school When they were talking about this as I was a child, the entertainment industry and all the things, and I realized, and I've asked the Lord to forgive me for the thoughts of me just being so critical towards them, because I now have that same understanding with years of maturity under my belt, saying, wow, the enemy of God is the enemy of his people, and he really does want to disable and disarm these things we know as marriage and family. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 say this about the human family of God. It says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Then he expounds and says this, children born not of natural descent, natural parenting, or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is where we get our understanding or some of our terminology for saying, I'm born again. I'm not just saved. I've been spiritually reborn when I've come to Christ. Scripture declares that we're adopted into God's family in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And when we're adopted into his family, we become his children, God the Father's children. And we become, and Jesus becomes, I should say, our brother. Here's the great news about this human family. It should not be homogenous or one-sided or one-gender or one race, or one social status, or economic status. The family of God is not bound by these things. It should not be bound by these things. Can I get a loud amen? Rather, we have a common heritage now, and the Bible says a common inheritance with those who God's promise originally 
came. And it doesn't matter what race you are, what nation you were born in, how much money is or is not in the bank, who you know or don't know. God says, whosoever will can come and become part of my family. It's amazing when you think about how awesome God is in the design of the church itself as his human family. Look at what Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 to 29 says. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, not male, not female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. The Bible says you're the children of Abraham and heirs according to the promise he was given. Father Abraham. Thank you. Okay, a couple of you know the song from Sunday school years and years ago. You are part of that family, the human family of God. Now hear me when I say this. Your human family may be filled or have spots on its record of dysfunction. There may be those who have experienced that sort of upbringing. Not just dysfunction, maybe there are marriages that failed and divorce that invaded and maybe you're estranged or someone in your family is estranged from someone else or the whole group of your family. That is not a depiction of what God's desire is for the human creatures. He wants the human creatures to live in relationship to one another, but also in relationship to him and to one another. Are you getting it this morning? Say amen. This is why it's important for you to consider, and this is why I said what I said strongly earlier, you cannot be a healthy and growing and maturing Christian without the connectivity of the local church. Because there are more than 30 cases or um, occurrences of the, the phrase one another in scripture in the New Testament. Things like encourage one another, build one another up, Correct one another. Spur one another on to good works. Do you know what a horse spur does on a boot? A boot spur? for <clears throat> Yeah. You're supposed to encourage one another to do good deeds and good works. How can you do that if you're not connected to this body, to this family? So the church is the body of Christ and it's the human family of God. The last descriptor I'll cover today is one that's mentioned directly by Jesus himself, and that is this, the church is a house of prayer. Now, this phrase comes from another place in scripture, but it, Jesus, when he quotes it, it's a very puzzling moment in his ministry on earth. The Bible says Jesus is in Jerusalem, that he goes into the temple, and that he does something in the temple that's very interesting and has caused many people to be puzzled at this. And it's found in Matthew chapter 21. 
Verse 12, it says this, And Jesus entered into the temple, and he drove out those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. It's very interesting. Deals with the emotion of anger that Jesus had in that moment. The Bible is clear. It's okay to be angry, but do not sin. Anger is a human emotion. Jesus did not commit a single sin while he was here on earth. What he was doing that day in the purging of the temple was getting them to realize and recognize that there's something important that should be happening here that isn't. And he was bold enough in front of his followers and those who were going to become his followers to call it his house, my house. He says, it is written. And it's a reference from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven, where God through the prophet Isaiah is telling the people of Israel, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what the end of that verse says. He's, he's telling them it's a house of prayer. It's where you bring offerings. It's where you worship me. It's a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. Now listen to this and put this connection together. Okay. I'm, I'm weaving this thread through. Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. Those who are gathered who believe in Jesus are now waiting for the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, what the word of God tells us is it says that those who had received the Holy Spirit in the outpouring that day, they devoted themselves to the teaching, that's what's happening right now, to the fellowship, which happens when you call Sandra this week and say, hey, can I, can we go get a cup of coffee? You want to come over to my house? Hey, can your kids come play with my kids? Whatever the case may be. Fellowship, that'll happen after service for a few minutes as well. You hang out, eat a donut, ruin your kids' lunch appetite. It's fun to be in church and fellowship. The breaking of bread, which they knew as the Lord's Supper, which we've done today as well, and prayer. The prayers, the Bible says. So there are several dynamics in view when the phrase house of prayer shows up because that's not the only thing that happens in the church. But let me just help you understand the three parts of this, the house of prayer. Individually, you say, Pastor, you, you just said five minutes ago the church is not a building. Now you're set. Listen to me. If I am the church, then individually... I have a responsibility to regularly pray. This, understand what I'm saying. This is a house of prayer. I think some of us either grew up or still hold on to some strange thought that prayer's just for like that white haired super saint who really, she or he's been in church for longer than they've been alive. And you're like, what? How's this possible? You know, like you, we just think that's reserved for those people. No, it's not. It's not. If you have a good thought while you're driving and the thought is about somebody else and, and it's a thought of blessing and, you know, good things towards that person, pray for that person right in that moment. 
That doesn't mean you jerk the car over to the side of the road. I'm not telling you to be a weirdo. We don't, we, we don't encourage that. What I am encouraging you to do is not be the person that thinks that this job is ref- just for those who are like the super saints. It's not. It's for my kids. The reason why we pray with them every night before they go to prayer is to teach them the regularity of prayer. The reason why I've been with my wife as she's visited with someone even in the church lobby and some daughter's been in tow and somebody's mentioned a prayer need and she stopped and said, you know what, um, Julie, let's stop and pray right now for, for your need. It's to demonstrate to them that God is real and that he listens to the prayers that we pray. He's not up there only concerned about the civil wars or the passage of something in Clinton, Mississippi on Tuesday. He's actually concerned with the boo-boo of a child. He's concerned with the sickness, the loss of a job, the issues that you face. He's concerned with those things, the marriages that you pray for. It might be your own, the family member. God knows the details of your life, and he wants wants to hear from you. Prayer is simply a conversation between God. So individually, you're to make prayer a priority in your own life. That's one of those dynamics of being a house of prayer. Secondarily, collectively, we're to make prayer a priority. We did so today in our services. We don't just use prayer as a transition point from one thing to the next. We take an extended time at the end of worship to say, prayer team members, come to the front and They'll pray for you for any need that you have in your, in your life, in your family, in your body. We offer prayer for healing. Uh, we have times of prayer every Sunday. We have pray first that happens. We attempt to collectively make prayer a, a priority. But then also this, since we do have a building and we do get to use it, we then try to help ourselves understand that any space that the people of God gather in should be a house of prayer. So it doesn't matter if you're in a small group. It doesn't matter if you're in a coffee shop. It doesn't matter where you are. If you are with other believers, that you are to be able to and comfortable with praying and going to God in prayer. Here's something really interesting. If God himself designated his house as a place of prayer, What do you think we should do? What do you think our role in that should be? We should then, what? Make prayer a priority and not just wait to pray on Sundays. So pray, pray, pray. Let's be a praying church, amen? So not only are we the body of Christ, not only are we the human family of God, and heaven is gonna be amazing, the future of the future of every believer who loves Jesus is so much more amazing than how lame could it be if you just floated on a cloud? I mean, some of you are pretty chill and you'd probably enjoy that. You might get some vacation time, but here's the deal. We're going to live a life. The Bible says in a transformed body, in a new kingdom, in a revitalized earth and heavens that we'll be able to live in. It's amazing when you see what God's plan has always been and it will finally be fulfilled one day. But before we get to that day, we've got to understand there's a mission. 
There's a mission for our church, and it's, it's not just individualized for every church. Like, we can pick our own mission, and First Baptist picks theirs, and Second Baptist picks theirs, and First Presbyterian picks theirs. No, we've all been given the same mission that his original followers were given. God has given the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, he has given them a mission, and it's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. It says this, now this is what Jesus says after his resurrection, immediately following his resurrection, according to Matthew's account, Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus did not say these words before his death or his resurrection. Study the word of God. It's very interesting to me that Jesus says, now I've been given all authority in both of these places and here's the job I'm giving you. Here's the mission I'm giving you. So he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on, in, in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me and he says, here's what it is. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is communicating to them the mission that they're supposed to carry out and complete. This mission is not just for your pastor. It's not just for Super Saint Betty. It's not just for that single person. That mission is actually for you. It's for every single one of us individually to make disciples, to baptize them, teach them. Why? Because God desires to enlarge his family. That's what he was trying to communicate when he had that conversation in John chapter 3. And he said, for anyone who comes, John 3.16, for all who would come, that they would not perish, but that they would have everlasting life. For all who want to can believe and become members of the family of God. So we've got some responsibilities. Uh, maybe we've got some catching up to do to a mission that we've lost out on. Maybe you remember being part of a church that just kind of acted like a social club. Oh, but for the grace of God, we all end up getting there. It gets super comfortable and we just do what we do and we do it together and we don't really have any engagement with those in our personal lives outside of here and outreach and things like that. God wants us, I believe by the Spirit of God, to get on mission, to make it our heartbeat so that we can help enlarge his family. Amen? Would you stand with me today? I'm so glad I almost started singing that old song. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. I am so glad to be part of the family of God. I'm honored to actually have been called to lead in a place of leadership in the family of God. But I want each of us to recognize, from the youngest to the oldest, I want each of us to recognize that God is not done. Amen? 
He still has a mission for you individually, for our church collectively. He has a mission, and that mission is for us to be a light to the nations, to share the gospel with those, not just to pay missionaries to do it when we give our offering, but for us to actually share our testimony and our faith with those that we know. Maybe you have that conviction today, or maybe you had something else appear in your mind as I preached and shared this message. Maybe it's about engagement in the life of the church. I would encourage you right now to just close your eyes, everyone in this room, to just close your eyes and and simply whisper that prayer that we pray often. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me?